0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Got Pop Popular Culture Podcast. I'm your host for today, Human Sadri, and while we're without Joe Trotter, sitting in his seat today is...
1: Joachim Hjalmar uh, from University West in Trollhattan, where I work as a literature lecturer.
0: And today, Joakim and I are going to be talking about classic literature. But fear not, it's not going to be dry. We're talking about classic literature in relation to popular culture. And maybe Joachim can expand a little on what we mean.
1: Well, uh, classic literature has to uh, be studied sometimes, of course, in in the classes, and students can sometimes find it dry. But it always has a continued relevance um, to new works. In in fairness, both popular and non-popular works. Um, But our focus here today is, of course, how classic literature can, to a large degree, inform uh, popular culture and in that sense also be a way of understanding uh, that popular culture.
0: And very often actually in ways that uh, the consumer of popular culture, or the the punter as it were, doesn't really know or understand. Um, uh, For instance, opening soon at the Opera House here in Gothenburg is uh, a revival of an old rock and roll musical from the 80s and 90s called Return to the Forbidden Planet. This uses old rock and roll songs, and it uh, is a pastiche almost of an old 50s film called Forbidden Planet.
1: Starring Nes- Leslie Nielsen. Starring
0: Leslie Nielsen in his pre-comedy days, at least. Yeah. Um, and what people don't often know is that Forbidden Planet is actually just a, a, a rewrite of The Tempest, the yeah, Shakespeare play. Yeah. Um, and you get that an awful lot in uh, in not just in in modern literature, but in in all kinds of texts that we enjoy as consumers of popular culture.
1: Yes, uh, I mean I, I recently read a piece uh, online, and shame on me, I forget who wrote it, um, but it had to do with uh, how Kate Bush uses Emily Brontë's *Wuthering Heights* in her song *Wuthering yeah. Heights*, and this was part of Kate Bush's debut. Mm, it was and her first single. It was her first single, and she insisted on this. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is that in the novel, um, the character of um, Kathy, Catherine uh, is always silent, in a yeah. sense. She doesn't have to get the chance to speak her piece, whereas Bush's version of it is Kathy finally voicing her side of the story mm. in a sense. Which makes it a sort of feminist mm. project yeah. and a kick ass way to start a career. And it's say.
0: actually I mean, it's actually a fairly radical reading of the text. Yeah. Which I think which I think is interesting. And I, I remember when Wuthering Heights came out, it it's actually interestingly, the first song that I remember hearing as a new release coming out. I must have been what, five when it came out, and we always had the radio on at home. And I remember that song and obviously not understanding the words. But it's what led me, the, my, my sort of love of Kate Bush is what led me to actually read Wuthering Heights as a teenager. And I think to this day, it's still my favorite novel. So, and it is, a. I always took took her reading of it to almost be the ghost of Kathy speaking it, to Lockwood. It,
1: it, it kind of becomes. Yeah. And I mean, if if you see, she made two videos, early day kind of videos, music yeah. videos to this, uh, both both of which include her dancing in a sort of very expressive, expressionist almost way. Ethereal. One, one, one dressed in white outside yeah. and one dressed in red. And Is that one indoors? I don't remember and exactly. I,
0: I think I'm only familiar with the white one, actually. Yeah,
1: But there's two anyway. And, and both sort of dealing with this expressionist thing with color and, and movement. And at the same time, then communicating with um, the classic text. And I think that's an important part of it because... As a literary scholar, um, I come back to the idea of intertextuality, the idea that texts inform one another, that no text exists in a vacuum. Yeah. And part of that is that finding what things connect to other texts, how they are important, it's not just enough to find analogues to it. Mm. You have to sort of see, okay, but how does this inform the text? But when it does and you start digging, it can sort of create a resonance where not only do you get a new understanding of the later text, but you also get a new understanding of the older text. Uh, A case in point, for instance, I wrote an article uh, a while back. It was published in 2015 um, about Neil Gaiman's usage of uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost in uh, Gaiman's Sandman, um, Sandman series, yeah. in particular, in the trade paperback *Season of Mists*, mm. but spreading out, sort of, and and affecting the entire uh, series of of, of of as such.
0: Alright. Well, for, for the uninitiated, it might be worth going into what Sandman actually is. Neil Gaiman, of course, is now probably in the top echelon the top one percent of famous authors in the in the world a
1: rock and roll author. the San rock and, and roll, roll author, yes um
0: but his real calling card was this series of, of comics and then later collected into into graphic novels called the sandman which while it sounds like it could be a superhero thing is is very definitely not and the, the storyline that that Joachim refers to season of mists is uh, essentially deals with hell and with with uh, Satan, but a very Miltonian Satan.
1: It's it's Lucifer, decided Lucifer has a grudge to the the main character of Morpheus or Sandman,
0: who is uh, the embodiment of dream.
1: And uh, they've met in the previous trade paperback, and and Lucifer has sworn vengeance on on, uh, on, on Morpheus. Morpheus and an event comes to pass that that means that Morpheus needs to go back into hell. Yeah. Because he's treated an old lover very very badly, sentencing her to 10,000 years in hell, yeah, essentially. And he's he's going back in in honor and everything, but he's prepared that there's going to be battle and he doesn't know if he's strong enough to do it, but he's following his path. And when he comes to hell, it turns out that it's empty. It's empty, and Lucifer has not only let everyone out; he's handing over the keys to to hell um, because he's no longer interesting to playing, interested in playing the role of the devil. Right. So, how does this relate to Milton? Then one might, of course, ask, uh, and who is Milton? Perhaps you might also ask. <laughs> one um, hopes not. But one yeah. hopes not, but but let's not presume. Uh, John Milton was a 17th century author. Um, He was part of the Glorious Revolution, the Civil War. Um, And he worked under Cromwell, essentially, and and such. But was most famous, I think, for Paradise Lost, which he penned. Or rather, his daughter penned it for him since he was blind at the time. And it's all about... Or rather, he claims in the text that it's all about the fall of man, how Adam and Eve falls from grace and, and we um, have the original sin emerging and everything. And the piece has been debated for the hundreds of years it's, it's since its creation because of the character of Satan and his characterization of Satan. Um, who kind of steals the show mm. by becoming the protagonist structurally yeah. speaking
0: and while while Paradise Lost is a fa- essentially an idea anyway, a devotional work, one doesn't one can't help but come out slightly rooting for the devil
1: well, one can apparently because in this <laughs> c- continuous debate, and what is partly interesting about it is that for for these many hundreds of years, there have been two clear signs, the pro-Satanists and the anti-Satanists. <laughs> and and so the pro-Satanists have argued like, yeah, but he's the hero. yeah, um, And the anti-Satanists have said, no, 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 he's, he's behaving badly. And that has been sort of going back and forth and, and you know, people bringing evidence to both sides. And um, I, re- I remember as a as a lowly <laughs> undergraduate student, I found a book uh, by Francis G. Blessington, uh, which discussed uh, milton's work in the context of the classical epic uh, like Homer and Virgil and his main argument was essentially that you know no, Satan cannot be a hero, he cannot be a he 's a parody of a classical hero, and it 's just sound sound argument, I think mm. um, but it doesn't solve the thing itself. Which I kind of thought it did at the time because my, my argument in an old old C essay was essentially that, you know, structurally he was the protagonist, but he was no hero, and that solved the debate, you know, the, the hubris of of of, of um, C students only. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but but what's more important and what recent uh, Milton scholarship has shown is essentially that you know it's possibly more interesting that this debate has been able to go on for this long without a definitive answer what is it in the text that lends itself to both of these very diametrically opposite readings and uh, in 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 my article i kind of drew drew upon that idea right um, and in how how gaiman actually uses milton's text
0: and of course gaiman um Gaiman doesn't just use Mil- Milton in Sandman either. I mean, th- there's quite a, a heavy Shakespearean presence too.
1: Oh yeah, mm. uh, and others uh, to boot. But, of course. but yeah, I mean, he mm. he draws, a, he has a story drawing upon uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, yeah. which actually won won the Fantasy World Fantasy Award for. Best short story that year, which was,
0: if I recall, the first uh, comic for, ever to, to first and last. Yes, because they changed the rules afterwards.
1: Which, which kind of makes sense to me, to be honest. Because sometimes uh, it becomes problematic for me to talk about comics as literature. Mm. I, I had a period in my youth where I also thought, you know, we should do this because, <laughs> because why isn't it literature? But. Mm. It's not that it's not literature for any qualitative Mm. values, but comics, it's it's a different medium. It operates on its own fundamental rules
0: dear listener you should know that uh, Joachim and I have had an ongoing conversation I think we're in it's in its seventh <laughs> year now where he and I disagree fundamentally on whether comics are literature or not I say they are he says no they are a medium which I can't really argue with that either but uh, but uh, I don't know this this will run and run and it's something we will come back to in a future episode of this podcast But I-
1: interestingly I will say this since we're touching on Gaiman as well there's a famous uh, gaiman anecdote recorded yeah. in high benders uh, book of interviews and such yeah. um, where gaiman remembers being at a party uh, and meeting a journalist and, and doing the meet and greet thing and the journalist asks him politely what he does for a living and and gaiman says that he writes comics yeah. and he sees the the eyes glaze over a bit on the on the um, journalist who is still polite enough, you know, to say, oh, have you written anything I might have heard of? And Gaiman says, well, I've I've been writing this comic, The Sandman, upon which the the journalist's eyes suddenly spark up. And he says, my God, man, you don't write comics, you write graphic novels. (laughs) And Gaiman (laughs) describes this as someone coming up to him and telling him, by Jove, you're not a prostitute, you're a (laughs) lady of the evening and it it's this silly thing where graphic novel just becomes a fancier word for for saying comics and and to me comics would be a medium and graphic novel a, a medium specific genre that that says something about the format yeah. more than that <laughs> but yeah it's uh, it's a bit insane sometimes
0: yeah sometimes we do have these terms that are just you know, slightly uh, euphemistic, almost like these aren't these aren't e- even graphic novels. It's sequential art, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're possibly getting there too. So.
0: But anyway, I mean, we are going to return to this theme in a future episode. Uh, we have uh, we have been saving comics up yeah. for a time that Joe and I and Joachim can all three of us be in the same room. But I mean, as, as I say, you know, Gaiman Gaiman is is very much. Into tying his work in with more classic, well, let, and, and not just classic literature, but I mean, obviously, uh, narrative. There's an awful lot of mythology and folklore in there as well.
1: And, and let's not forget, I mean, if we talk about classic literature, the collections of fairy tales oh, are yeah. definitely in there. Oh yeah, um, and the Bible, the, the Bible, um, th- the different versions of mythology written down. Yeah, um, I mean, you have Homer as as a good starting point for for Greek uh, myths yeah. um, but not only, of course, you have famous tellings and retellings mm-hmm. from the classical Greek era up to till today I mean, um, only I think last year was it or, or the year before that um, you had a retelling of Greek, Greek myths by um, well, right. Stephen Fry, yeah, he's Steve. done two actually there's a yeah, new the one follow-up. too
0: yeah. but not just that, Gaiman himself if we're going, if we're yeah, talking about yeah, it, he yeah, had North myths. Norse myths Norse mythology, um,
1: which is used frequently beforehand, but yeah. but um, n- now retelling the the myths in a sort of more paradigmatic way.
0: But there's something, uh, and I mean, I'm not um, I, as as a literary scholar, I'm not uh, uh, really into my uh, evolutionary literary criticism or my biocultural, but. One of the paradigms there is that man is a storytelling animal, no. and that story has an awful lot to tell us. The stories that we tell each other to, to explain things have an awful lot to tell us about us as an organism on, a, on an evolutionary level. I don't necessarily know about that, but my my field of expertise is Joseph Campbell, and that is archetypal criticism, and that talks about the primacy of stories um, yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, Campbell obviously comes from from uh, Jung, yeah. who, who, after breaking off from Freud, um, delved more into the idea of the collective unconscious yeah. and and the idea that we have archetypes. We have archetypes exactly. And and then you follow up with with Campbell, who's not only branching out from from Jung, mm. um, but also, of course, Claude levi Strauss and the yeah. idea of collecting story and myths and and mm. seeing how you have. Mm. R- r- you have structures that keep returning. Uh, you have certain kinds of heroes. I mean, it's, it's no coincidence that Campbell's most well-known work is The Hero of a Thousand Faces. Never heard of it. <laughs> no, you're only using it in your <laughs> in your dissertation. So,
0: But, I mean, Levi Le- Le- Strauss as well, if you boil it down, which I don't necessarily want to do, but if you boil uh, structural anthropology in literature down, Levi Strauss, what he essentially says is that story is a language in and of itself.
1: Yeah, and, I, and, I, I, and think I
0: think that that's true. Uh, if we if we look at the amount of stories that we understand and the fact that they work for us on a semiotic level.
1: Well, not only that. I mean, what's what's interesting to me as well, uh, and and what we'll cover here as well in in sort of the discussion of covering different medium. Mm. When you when you move from one medium to another, part of what what it does it has to do with how we cognitively actually. Uh, understand it, yeah uh, we we read text the book differently than we read a comic which takes in the visual cues and everything hmm. apart from the language. We work differently if we' listen to an audiobook because when we hear something, we process it differently in our brain than if we read it on the page. Yeah. Uh, if we see a film with moving pictures, again, something different, but in all of these different media. We keep coming back to narrative structures mm. and and the idea of storytelling.
0: Yeah, and stories which very often speak to us on a certain level simply because they are, they are stories we have always known. We have known them from the first time we encountered them. It's why, for instance, we look at The Lion King and we see Hamlet.
1: Well, if we know Hamlet,
0: yeah, and I mean, but the... but my point is that we know Hamlet without knowing that we know Hamlet.
1: Yeah, sometimes or often. Um, But then we can debate what what knowing Hamlet means. Um, But I think it's interesting because in a sense, and it keeps coming back to this idea of intertextuality. And I I say this to my students a lot of the time and most of them uh, these days are, 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 are studying to become teachers. Yeah. And I tell them you have to read. Yeah, you have to read. And why do you have to read, and not just read? You have to watch films, you have to do things, because how you read the next text or, or watch the next film will be affected by the back catalogue you have in your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can't read the Lion King into, or rather, the uh, Shakespeare into the Lion King, if you don't know Shakespeare. Uh, you can do it sort of by default, by being familiar with the Shakespearean story, yeah. which of course didn't originate with sh- Shakespeare, if we're no, going to be course. even more yeah. Um, but the arg- the But the
0: argument is that maybe the reason that we still have Hamlet as a touchstone is Shakespeare. Maybe the story would not have survived. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I think that each telling of a tale does have something that makes it unique. Mm. And some retellings are stronger than others. There's a reason why we return to certain classic works, not just because they inform later texts, but there's something in them, either that's clearly expressed for the first time there, or um, because it's just the the best, or one of the best expressions of it so far. Right. I mean, I know we talked a little bit before um, this session um, also about Shakespeare, but um, we're both in agreement that a, a lot to do with Shakespeare does have to do with language and such as well. And we can debate, is, is that the be-all and end-all of it? But um, for myself, when, when um, Bath Lerman did his Romeo plus Juliet in the 90s, one of the big uh, pros for me, and, and really what sold the going to watch the film, for me, was that he was actually using the Shakespearean text. Yeah. Um, Because, honestly, I've I've never found the star-crossed lover scenario that interesting. No. Though I think that the play as written reads very well. Yeah, Um, until the ending, Rich. Until the ending. But language-wise and everything, he he spruces it up to work. Yeah. Uh, And a lot of retellings become a bit banal to me.
0: But I do also wonder, I mean... The thing is, with Shakespearean language, it being early modern English yeah. and it very often being written in iambic pentameter, I do think that...
1: Which people might know better as blank verse, to be Blank honest. verse, yeah.
0: But the, the, the problem is not that it's difficult to understand, but that people perceive it as difficult to understand yeah. and, so, and therefore run. Yeah. Which, if you, see, uh, if you see a good production of a Shakespeare play, then the language is very much elucidated. Very quickly.
1: Yeah, but, and I mean, also you have you have that sort of thing where you have a certain type of diction being practiced sometimes yeah. by actor actors yeah. <laughs> who really overdo it instead mm. of sort of little less so now acting so,
0: is much more naturalistic now. I think. Yeah,
1: I think they they moved it, but it, mm. I mean, historically speaking, that, I think that mm. helped to project this image yeah. of this difficult and haughty yeah. language. I mean, we have this idea, for instance, that thou is somehow. A very sort of almost regal thing, yeah. and, and historically speaking, it was the lower, lowercase you. Um, so, so it was what you would say to someone you were very familiar with, yeah. rather than the opposite way around. So, you know, there's that.
0: We do know that with Shakespeare. I mean, whenever you see Shakespeare discussed in a, a, a popular setting let's say. It tends to be the language more than the storytelling. It tends to be, oh, but look at how many phrases and words he coined for the language, and look at at just the the poetry of it, which is fine if Shakespeare only held sway, as far as reputation goes, over the English-speaking world. But the fact is, Shakespeare plays are performed in pretty much every language. And in translation, no matter how good the translation, translations will always lose something. I mean, it's I've seen I've seen Shakespeare per- performed here in Sweden, mm-hmm. and it was a very good production, but the language was modern. It was a translation, direct translation, but the language was modern. And I think, well, it makes me wonder. Well, I speak fluent Swedish, but I don't speak it naturally enough to n- be able to spot what's missing.
1: No, but I think that Salman Rushdie. Yeah. has a very good uh, idea that he often comes back to and it's that things are lost in translation, yes mm. but things are also gained oh, in yeah, translation Absolutely, and I think that one thing that we should never forget in these cases when you have classical works of literature or, or great storytellings of any mm. kind that's being translated from one yeah. language to another it informs that language's literary language absolutely it means that sure the storytelling itself can can sort of intertextually interact someone might read shakespeare in english Mm. and then draw upon that in in their work in swedish yeah but in doing so they might also sometimes go back and see what are the existing translations is Mm. anyone particularly good it might even be that their first contact with with uh, the text was in translation and maybe that informs them
0: but no but my point is though that it's the story and the way in which the story is presented I mean possibly we know that a lot of Shakespeare's uh, plays are histories although not necessarily accurate histories we know that a lot of his stories are taken from myth and from stories that were, were current at the time there are very few Shakespeare plays that are cut from whole cloth I think it's pretty much A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest really isn't it probably yeah I mean even The Winter's Tale has its roots elsewhere
1: yeah uh, and you would know that better than, yeah. than me being more of a Shakespearean scholar than I am
0: but I mean and, and this ties back to uh, what we were talking about with Neil Gaiman because in Sandman Dream grants Shakespeare the gift of story in return for two plays to be written exclusively for Dream, A Midsummer Night's Dream and and The The Tempest
1: Tempest. Uh, and and not bookending the whole arc in a sense since the first one comes a bit in but the final Mm. one being the almost final one
0: Uh, yeah it's the final issue is The Tempest no
1: and um, I mean um, I think the setup in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream that is Gaiman's A Midsummer Night's Dream um is quite beautiful because mm-hmm. it's about the first performance of the play which yeah. is done outdoors and for the fairy court yeah uh, so they're playing uh, this story about the fairy queen mm-hmm. and fairy king in front of the fairy king and the fairy queen yeah. uh, with with sort of an insight into the very kindly Robin Goodfellow But that's the inter- that's, so what, that's what's interesting sandy. to
0: me because it, uh, it, in the context of uh, um, A Midsummer Night's Dream I mean obviously it, it depends very much on the production and how the actor reads the character but I mean let's just say uh, the most recent movie of A Midsummer Night's Dream the, the movie with Stanley Tucci as, as Puck which is from yeah. about 20 years ago, that that uh, final speech of the puck, you know, if we shadows have offended, yeah. think, but this and all is mended, it's presented with this twinkle in the eye and a smile, you know, yeah. and, and if we be friends, you know, take yeah. give me a hand if you... Be. But uh, Gaiman juxtaposes that with... The real puck. The real puck. Well, real in inverted <laughs> commas, obviously, but real, if you take the puck... The full glory puck. Yeah, if you take the puck in the context of... Uh, folklore yeah then it wouldn't be quite such a twinkly character it would be something a lot more feral yeah and that's interesting because what that does is it draws a mirror to the literary side of things
1: yeah it, and, uh,
0: and and comments on it
1: yeah, it. yeah and i mean th- this is something we see a lot in in um, in these retellings yeah. i mean um if we look at something as as old as, as you know the epic of beowulf yeah which you then have retold by John Gardner in the 60s or 70s uh, as Grendel, yeah, um, which has a lot of problematic twists and, and turns that I'm not going to get into, but which also helps us forward to uh, the 80s when Merillion had as one of their first very lengthy epic tracks Grendel, yeah, where part of the story is is told through Grendel's perspective as well. And then jump ahead to the to the early 2000s where you have both a Gaiman version on film um, but also a lovely Icelandic production which does a lot sort of to view things both deconstructing the view of the monster um, and what makes the monster monstrous or not uh, but also deconstructing the hero um, in in sort of making uh, Beowulf question it and it sort of reads not so much as inspired by that but mm. uh, trying to tell the story that inspired mm. the original telling
0: mm. but of course also I mean it's, it's not just a, a deconstructionist take that, that we can look at I mean last year it was last September there was a novel called The Mere Wife by Maria Darvana Headley, and I think, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Uh, and that is a modern feminist retelling of Beowulf from the point of view of Grendel's mother. I mean, I haven't read that. I do remember reading interviews with her and, and she she spoke about it um, quite, in, quite uh, interestingly on the Guardian Books podcast. So that's what brought it to mind.
1: Just, yeah, you, know, you, the, the, you know, as the,
0: an academic, so many books, so little time.
1: Of course, always the problem, and then add some some films and TV series and and comics, and time runs out fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, you have in in terms of feminist retelling, you which which sort of has has come about quite a lot since a lot of old mythic material and old classic material does tend to have. Um, some sexist stances oh God, or yes. some racist stances built into it, yeah. um, and you know, questioning that rather than just sort of reproducing those values yeah. is also an important thing. Mm. We have, for instance, it's it's got a number of years on its neck now, but uh, Margaret Atwood's wonderful retelling of of uh, the Homeric cycles, yeah, the, uh, Penelope, the Penelope Ad, yeah. um which really lets Penelope. Uh, tell her story,
0: but I mean, there was uh, a new version of Homer last year, of the Odyssey, yeah. that was actually edited for the first time ever, edited and translated by a female academic, and uh, she found an awful lot in the Greek, that actually um, that the, the 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 handmaidens that uh, yeah. that Atwood speaks about, actually in the the original Greek that she found stuff to, that exonerates them in a lot of ways that had been essentially excised yeah. by by male translators.
1: Yeah. So, so that's also a thing. I mean, we, we tend to think, I mean, when we talk about the literary canon, which mm. is almost unavoidable when we talk about the classics, it's important to remember that literary history, as any history, mm. is not just the past. It's, how the past has been written as a narrative yeah and when you write a narrative you're obviously editing events yeah you're trying to focus on on seeing connections yeah of course but also i mean just as for a long time we focused only on on battles and kings and queens not the common folk for instance Mm. there's also been a masculine narrative told for a great deal of the time which may and may not always have have yeah. met the actual conditions. I mean, we have certain ideas of how the oppression of women has worked. And, yeah. and then we see in more recent written histories that perhaps it hasn't been as simple as that all the time in all the places. Yeah. And whenever you've had something that doesn't match the sort of official narrative, there has been a tendency to reformulate it and say, oh, we have this writer in, in Sweden, for instance, then uh, heliga Birgitta, the holy Bir- Birgitta. Yeah. And we sort of hold her, uh, her up as an, an example of something outside the norm that right. she was writing. And the French apparently have a similar figure yeah. that they hold up as the outside of the norm. Yeah. And what it really kind of showcases is that there were more nuns like this doing writing but we have chosen to sort of ignore it, Yeah. Um, and we we just take one and pick it up and hold it up as something that breaks with the norm, but but sort of at the same time reaffirms the norm. Yeah. Instead of saying that you know that kind of female writing was quite common. Well,
0: I mean, that's quite a patriarchal move, isn't it? Yeah. To, to well, here is here is the exception that confirms the rule. Yeah, of kind of thing. of thing. Yeah. But I mean, on the subject of uh, since we're bringing about we're we're talking about. Uh, patriarchal ideas and writers who will take classic literature and uh, try to dismantle the, the intrinsic patriarchal nature of it, yeah. um, that brings us back to Milton, in a way, yeah. because uh, we have Philip Pullman. Yeah. And whereas it's not Milton's patriarchal ideas he was trying to dismantle, it was actually C.S. Lewis's ideas Yeah, uh, in His Dark Materials. The His Dark Materials trilogy, which I think right now is actually a very timely thing to bring up. It's a trilogy of uh, fantasy-ish novels. I mean, I hesitate to say fantasy uh, without Stephanie Ekman here to correct me, but they are fantasy novels, essentially – based around a strong young female protagonist in a way he has said that he was trying to um answer what is o- often called by writers the problem of susan which in um c.s lewis's narnia stories where all the kids get to go to heaven except for susan because she's discovered boys essentially which is, which is a hugely patriarchal problematic uh, way of looking at things really but you know <laughs> Not necessarily alien to C.S. Lewis, to uh, look at things problematically and patriarchally. And um, of course,
1: as an aside, we might all say that Gaiman um, has a, wrote, yeah. wrote a short story called yes, The Problem of, Problem Susan, of Susan, which now. was recently um, included in, in a book with the same name uh, in a graphic yeah. novel adaptation. Yeah.
0: But his Dark Materials is not reappraisal really of the Narnia stories it's actually a reappraisal of Paradise Lost oh yeah and the reason that it's um that it's quite timely to bring it up is that it's the next uh, big television uh adaptation to come it's coming from it's coming from uh the BBC yeah. later on this year
1: which I hope will do better than the film from a, from well, a number f- of years The back. problem
0: with the film is that uh, the studio ref- uh, refused to allow them to mention religion in any way, which if you're talking about <laughs> his dark materials, I mean, that's a little yeah. bit like writing 20,000 leagues under the sea and telling them, well, obviously, there Don't can't talk be any about the water. Sea. <laughs> there can't be any water.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's a problem with the American market, if I may well, be so Well, maybe bold. not
0: so much anymore, but at the
1: time. At the time, at yeah. least, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and now, of well, course, maybe
1: more so, again, given the current yeah. political climate.
0: It is, uh, in a way, a reappraisal and rewrite of Paradise Lost. And now, of course, he's writing a, a sequel sequel yeah. trilogy, which, rather than Paradise Lost, he's actually using the Fairy Queen. Oh,
1: so Spencer coming into it. Yep. Again, we see the classics. Exactly. Spencer wrote the Fairy, teen, uh, fairy Queen at the uh, time of Shakespeare, of course. Yeah, of course.
0: I mean, that's quite interesting as well. I, I, I mean, what would you... what, what what do you think Pullman brings to the...
1: To the table? Yeah. I think he really digs into, much like Gaiman, they they dig into these loftier questions, which for Milton purely has to do with religion, yeah. of course, but but it has to do sort of with, with our spirituality, yeah. whether we choose to view that in a sort of religious sense or, or if we want to look at it more philosophically, yeah. um, as such but these these stories about um, about viewing these things and i mean one of the things that that Pullman does is of course dig his fingers into w- what is this free will and and sin and, and and how can how can it be how can we understand the fall of man as told in these recurrent stories yeah and i mean in 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 uh, gaiman's retelling or rather, not so much a retelling as as drawing upon. Yeah. I, I find it very interesting because what I was looking at in my article on it has to do with the fact that Gaiman does such a very classic thing when it comes to signposting into textuality. Right. He has this uh, one scene where... Morpheus, the Sandman, being honorable as I said, has sent an envoy ahead of himself to announce that he's coming, which yeah. might seem like a stupid thing, but you know, he's following the rules essentially, and that's also an important part of his character and and the characterization and, and what this is all about. Um, and it's Cain. Yeah. I think Cain and Abel who are part of the, the dreaming, yeah. the, the realm of the dream lord, Morpheus. Yeah. Um and he sends Cain because biblically speaking in Genesis, you have the line where where the Lord sets his mark upon Cain, lest anyone hurting him um, would have vengeance taken on in sevenfold yeah um, so he's safe in a sense, yeah but you know, safe with a twist, because yes, Lucifer will not harm him, but he's not treating him nicely and kindly, he's flying around with him, holding him in his beard, and then he lands and he's he's talking to him, and he's saying. Better reign in hell than serve in heaven, a little brother killer. C- c- certainly, Lord Lucifer, whatever you say, we didn't say it. Milton did, and he was blind. Yeah. And that's, you know, it It signals that you, you have this first line, the quote, which is actually in quotation marks properly, so it s- should sort of set us off that, okay, he's quoting something. Why is he quoting something? Why is this interesting? And then it comes with a follow-up that actually cites the source kind of, at least Milton if not Paradise Lost, and then adding the the sort of seemingly just biographical reference of Milton being blind. Mm. But of course being blind is something double. You can be blind to something and that in and of itself suggests that someone is missing out on something and doesn't understand it. And this sort of sets up a dialogue between Gaiman's Lucifer and Milton's Satan and Milton as the, the the writer of Satan and develops into an ongoing question of of free free will and, and sort of plays off the Sandman character himself yeah. who is always following the rules who is always bound. Lucifer quits. Yeah. Something that, that uh Milton's Satan can never do. He has a famous line uh, wherever I may fly is hell. Yeah. Myself am hell. So he cannot fly the domain of hell, because he has become the embodiment of hell, in essence. Yeah. He's gone from the light of, of, of the Lord, as it were. Whereas Gaiman's Lucifer ups and quits, yeah, and serves as an example for a possibility of what Gaiman's Sandman could do, yeah. but ultimately, yeah. in the end, chooses not to do. And, and that whole sort of cycle becomes very interesting through this dialogue. It, it gains depth from this dialogue with Miltonic tradition. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the same goes for Pullman, obviously, that, that you know, you can read these books without having an inkling of um, Milton. Um, same goes for, for, for Gaiman. But having a bit of knowledge of that, knowing that that story helps inform A deeper understanding of the text. Oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Because again, the same as with Sandman, as you say, you don't have to have the original texts in your arsenal. You don't have to have the encyclopedic knowledge. If you do, then that makes it all the more enjoyable, but you can enjoy it anyway. And
1: and, and let's, let's also note that, you know, when we're talking about intertextuality in a sort of, in one way, we could talk about intertextuality in a very sort of anachronistic manner. Yeah. not in that it was influencing or something like that but when we come to texts we come to texts with a backlog of texts yeah. um, and, and for, for a sort of broader understanding of text they would include films and comics mm. and, and such here as well uh, music and, and such and you know if, if we come through that and especially I tell this to my students who are about to become teachers in, in the schools teaching Swedish and sometimes English, um, which includes literature in both cases. And, you know, you have to remember that the kids in school reading or being sometimes forced to read these things, how do you sell it to them? you know you can't stick homer in their hands and start talking about meter no of course um but that's often what's being done which and is a
0: mistake because in the end the reason that these um these texts have survived is because they are and and as academics we shouldn't say this word but you know they are fun
1: yeah and and um, you know it's not true for all classic works. I would say no, um, Although, w- w- which, which yeah, doesn't but, necessarily mean that it's but, uh, less important to sometimes read, but to understand why it's fun later on.
0: But I think that I think that also. I mean, even the driest, even the hardest text can be is enjoyable.
1: Well, I depending
0: mean, on your point of view, depending on what you enjoy reading.
1: Yeah, true, true. And it you're can not be gonna an, And the it thing doesn't is, have to be enjoyable uh, no, but, either. No. I mean I But just you're it, not
0: gonna enjoy you're not gonna enjoy reading something if you don't read it. No, and, point.
1: and you don't know what, what what it is. But I mean students sometimes ask me like, you know, do you like everything, Joachim? Do you do you? and I said no. no. And you know, I will tell you when I don't. I yeah. I, I don't particularly enjoy Robinson Crusoe. I think it's Extremely dull. Yeah, um, this is a way of selling the book, obviously. Yeah, but also it's a good thing
0: we're not teaching it on the A course system.
1: <laughs> but, but, oh, hold I, w- on, I will also tell students that I understand why it's important to read it from a perspective of literary history, mm. and the impact it has on literary history, and the number mm. of works that you can trace back as Robinsonites. Mm. Um, I mean, you can you can include things like William Goldwing, Golding's. Um, Lord of the Fly, yeah. which I think is absolutely brilliant, and even to to more contemporary work. I mean, you can you can look at something like the Hunger Games, the first uh, book, yeah. as as something of a Robinsonade in, in in its structure. So um, not yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't know. It, it has been done, okay. <laughs> academically speaking. So um, it's uh, you know you, you see these strands and yeah. go, going forward. So sometimes,
0: but, but Robinson Crusoe is an interesting case in point because it. Uh, the character of Robinson Crusoe yeah. is uh, one of those literary characters who has so crossed over into popular culture as to be essentially a, se- a semiotic symbol in and of himself.
1: Also a also, lot because it, from very early on it was adapted not to another medium but to mm. other forms of literature because it, along with the rise of the novel fairly swiftly you saw the rise of children's lit. Yeah, And children's literature adapted some stories to be retold. And some of these early stories you see what's being let go. Yeah. And it's it's becoming more and more interesting to see like, you know, certain things are there and, and important in the original and entirely lost in some of these things. Mm. Um but it helps immense the the main idea of this lone man on the island yeah. uh being able to reconstruct society on his own, which, you know, is problematic in the sense that it's a very British a narrative of, of colonialism. colonialism, of course. You, you can only see from the from the very sort of typical meeting with Friday.
0: But this is kind of what I'm getting at, though, because as literary scholars we know this, but from from a popular cultural or a semiotic point of view, that's not what Robinson Crusoe stands for. Yeah, it's the same as I mean, Gulliver's Travels is uh, is a satire. Yeah, it's a political satire, but that's the the character of uh, Lemuel Gulliver. Has come to represent something else entirely in popular culture, and it's all, almost a, just a shorthand for itself. I mean, if you see um, a play, or not even a play, a, a cartoon, The Simpsons, and somebody yeah. goes "To be or not to be," that is a question. You know exactly what it's referring to,
1: and people will believe that there should be a skull involved.
0: Yes, well, exactly. Even <laughs> though, even though that's the wrong scene, alas, Prioric. Yeah, but these little snippets, these things, I mean, Gulliver is recognizable. Uh, You know, Hamlet is recognizable. Romeo and Juliet are recognizable. Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer are recognizable Uh, to people who have never once read these texts or seen, even seen a film or a play based on the novels uh, in the case of Mark Twain. And in in some cases
1: we know stories fairly well, in some cases fairly accurately in some cases, not accurately at all. Mm. But it also means that it's interesting to, to go back to the originals and, and yeah. see how they interact. And, and also sometimes by which roots it has gotten there, because sometimes you see that the intertextuality goes directly, but sometimes not so directly. It might rather be that, you know, that book is referring to another text, which in itself is referring back to the first text. And sometimes it might even be a, a, a sort of two-pronged attack, where the text goes back to the original, but also to a text in between. Yeah. Um, I read something about adaptation a, a long time ago, because some critics, especially for a while, when it comes to film, film adaptation, giving up the idea of of you know things trying to be faithful to to an original, um, which I think you know it has doesn't shouldn't be even the, the main concern yeah. uh, of the scholar. But at the same time, if we understand what could be transferred, then we can look at what's not being transferred in a more, you know, interesting way. Like why isn't it being transferred? Does it have to right. do with financial things? Does it have to do with a uh, director wanting to make his mark by sort of peeing in his territory? Yeah. Uh, or, or is it simply that, you know, someone wants to do a feminist retelling mm. uh, in, in adapting the work, like like putting more emphasis on female characters yeah. or, or whatever. But but it's it's interesting anyway to see that in drawing away from sort of the f- fidelity criterion, um, they were saying that, you know, well, that's source material, it's only one of many intertexts. Yeah. And I think they're right in that. I think we, we need to, for instance, any Shakespeare film, any new Hamlet film, will relate not only to Shakespeare's text, but to previous film adaptations, yeah. to some degree to certain stage adaptations, um, to other Shakespearean productions.
0: Well, I think that part of that is because the it has been pro- produced so many times. Yeah that it's almost like a song uh, a song that has had too many cover versions what mm. are you bringing to this party yeah why why should i see for instance andrew scott playing hamlet when i could have seen ben, benedict cumberbatch the year before and the year before that it yeah. was i don't know david yeah. tennant what what are we all bringing to the party
1: and and i mean in terms of adaptation i think it's it's important still to remember the idea of a source text in the sense that by saying it's an adaptation we are saying, or saying even a retelling in some cases in in literature. We are saying that they're telling this story, hmm. so so they're making a claim. Um, even if it's important to remember that it's not the only intertext flowing in and out of of, of this text. Hmm. Um, but also, I mean, you can you can compare it to music. I mean, when you have a cover version, as you said, I, I I've usually found that there are two basic ideas of cover versions. Either you try to stay as close to the original as possible. Yeah, which is which, pointless, not, essentially. It, it can work very, very well mm. if it's live. Yeah. If it's in concert. But, but for, recorded for, is pointless. In, it, recorded is absolutely pointless. There you have to have something setting it apart. Yeah. Whereas there's a great deal sort of uh, to be said for, for instance, famous bands who've stopped doing... Their th- thing, or, or at least the thing they were doing at a certain time, say Genesis, who aren't playing anymore, but you know their '70s stuff was very particular. Uh,
0: how did I know we were going to get into <laughs> Prague somehow?
1: <laughs> no, but but you know, and and you have a lot of cover bands out there dressing up and doing the stage productions as if they were doing it back then, and it's good for for those people who missed out on being able to go to concerts in the '70s. Yeah. So, so, so it fills it fills a function, hmm. but having that on CD, yeah. Why would I want that when I can do some new material yeah. and I'll be willing to listen to it? Yeah, or
0: there's the cover that entirely re reinterprets the song. In yeah, I mean, sometimes way. the best. Uh, but that's that's yeah. Now we're going off the yeah. Just track d- a just
1: one one thing to close that aside. I mean, one of the most interesting things when it comes to to cover versions in that sense is when you have a cover being done in a different genre. Yeah. So you have a a metal song done as lounge music, or yeah. or or a, uh, a disco song done as metal, or yeah, sh- yeah. That's shit happens then.
0: Yeah. So the, back to the topic, being of course intertextuality.
1: Yeah, which can lead us all over the place. Yeah. As listeners have understood by now.
0: <laughs> Again, never heard of it. No,
1: <laughs> precisely. No, but I mean, I think I think that this is what we're the core of what we're really saying. You know, yeah. the the classics. Are classics for a reason, um, or two reasons. I mean, partly because it's been canonized and taught in classes. Yeah, Um, but it survived and survived and survived, which is interesting because let's not diminish the importance that sometimes certain classic works more or less disappears for a while. Yeah, We think, for instance, of Shakespeare as enduring all the time. Which yeah. is not true. The classicist era hated him to a large Absolutely. extent because he wasn't following the classicist uh, formula mm. for, for a successful drama. Yeah.
0: And sure, I think after the, the restoration, uh, a lot of drag era Shakespeare plays were, had their endings rewritten, didn't they? They T- had
1: lots of stuff rewritten in yeah. it. But it's, it's interesting. I remember uh, reading um, I think it was either Penguin or Oxford Classics editions of, of Macbeth for, for teaching it and, yeah. you know, reading this overview in the beginning, in excellent introduction. And part of it was sort of, you know, stage performances over time and, you know, talking about different editions and additional lines being written yeah. and, and inserted and, and, and things like that. So, yeah, of course, it's, um, it's always going to be interesting to follow that kind of... Metamorphosis of a play, yeah. um, where it always is sensitive to performances. But then again, we often tend to neglect the the fact that older works are always a little bit revised and edited. Yeah. Um, we we notice it whenever someone sort of revises or edits something for racist remarks or something, and and um, you know you, you you get a hold. Debate on it. And yeah. Yeah. You know, censorship is problematic, but um, part of it is is editing, which goes on always. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, you, ha- you have to give and take. We shouldn't we shouldn't edit away our flaws so that it seems we were always perfect and, and never had wonky opinions. As a species. A, yeah, but at the same time. But at the same time we have to think about the context for it. I mean, should we should we take out certain words of people long stocking? Well, d- are are they there for any real purpose? No, well exactly. That's no. the thing.
0: It, you'd lose nothing from the text if you that one particular problematic word. Yeah. Um, Uh, in describing her father's current job as it were then, then it's absolutely fine to take it out you don't necessarily lose anything
1: no and, and in, in, whereas in some cases, if you have a book about the American Civil War, yeah. certain words might actually add to explaining the situation as yeah. it were at the time. Yeah. So, you know, what we, ha- what we must remember is not pretend that the text was always written yeah. as such. But that's the difference between, again, seeing the audience. It's one thing if I'm teaching it to, to my students in class and can problematize these issues it's not necessarily what a five year old needs to hear in passing no. without necessarily an adult being there to problematize yeah. it yeah. Because, and, because and again in
0: a completely a completely separate context and i know this isn't classic literature but um if you've seen those old uh, those old dvd sets of the classic uh, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, oh yeah, Docs, yeah. The, I have a with, lot of them. Uh, Leonard Maltin pops up yeah. before any of the cartoons that really have yeah, they've set them problematic aside and... things, and they say, "Okay, just so you understand, this is this was Derrigier at the time. Yeah. We see it as problematic now, but we're trying to present the whole thing. Yeah, so which I, please I think bear is a, a,
1: which I think is a very fair way of doing it. I yeah. think that we need to. We need to be able to access the material of the past that is problematic. And I mean, we see also that it's a fruitful process because a lot of of what we've been talking about today has to do with reactions. I mean, you have something like um, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, to mention another one of the Bronte uh, Bronte sisters,
0: Bertha, you mean? Yeah, Ber- well, Bertha, the, yeah, mad the mad woman, woman in the, in the attic. attic.
1: And you get Jean Russe in the 60s.
0: Yeah, White Sargasso Sea, which is an absolutely essential text.
1: And and it, it sort of retells the the colonial perspective of Bertha from her point, point of view. Yeah. And, and, you know, that text cannot exist without the other. Same no. thing with with um, Coté's uh, Faux, yeah. where he does a, a, a dual... Retelling of Robinson Crusoe, and I forget which the other one is right now, but but one of his more uh, female heroes. Or oh, more
0: Flanders, maybe. I don't know. I think it's
1: another one, uh, to be honest. But anyway, mm. he combines these two and rewrites them, um, producing a narrative that that problematizes patriarchy, as we yeah. said, because we learn that a lot of what happened on the island is influenced by this woman being there, and she's never mentioned in Defoe's uh, retelling. Right. Um, And Defoe is also there as a a character. Ah, okay. Meanwhile, uh, Friday is mute. Yeah. So so the mute uh, colonial subject is is at least given some semblance of voice by by Defoe, whereas the woman is shut out. Yeah. So it's always going to be like that. And I mean, these colonial kinds of themes can sort of lead us back to the Tempest as well, of course, yeah, of with, course. with Caliban and and uh, and Miranda and Ariel and yeah. everyone under the patriarchal figure of yeah, Prospero.
0: Some some real questions of slavery. In yeah. America. Yeah. We, we are running low on time, so maybe if we can, just to sum up, I mean, yeah. a, as ever, and, and <laughs> Joe always says this in, in, uh, in other episodes, and, but it's true, it's such a wide topic that we couldn't hope, hope at all to touch everything in the context of one podcast, so we're going to probably do a follow-up on this at some point along the line, hopefully, but uh, to sum up?
1: To sum up, don't uh, ignore the classics and try to... Re- read them in the context of of uh, the popular culture you enjoy yeah. and remember it goes both ways you might sort of come to the classic from the popular culture you might read Sandman and see Milton quoted and decide to find out why and Yeah, that's fine too yeah.
0: and if you've never read Sandman or his dark materials please do because uh, I envy you your reading of them for the first time Put it me that too way. So, without further ado, just to remind everybody that we would love it if you could leave reviews or um, even sort of the stars on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called now, or your podcatcher of choice. It's a good way to spread the word about the podcast if it's something you like. And we're always up for uh, any comments or anything that you would like to send us. Uh, note the contact details are in the show notes. Uh, so all that remains for me is to thank you, Akin.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye now.